Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Tim. And this is Comics Obscura, your critical conversation on comic books and comic book culture. On today's episode, we're talking about Destroyer by Victor LaVale, illustrated by Dietrich Smith with Joanna LaFuente from Boom Studios. Okay, we're live. Yeah. We did it. We Everyone is destroyed. <laughs> we killed them all, and we're the last one standing. Sorry, fuckers. <laughs> You'll be listening to this podcast in hell. This is our... <laughs> they probably play this podcast in hell. They probably do play this podcast yeah. in hell. This is what over you listen and to. Over and 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 over. Yeah, this and is what over. you listen to when you wait to get into hell. <laughs> and they go, oh, this... This is pretty bad, but it's this not is, so bad. This is playing on the elevator down. Yeah. Like, and then you oh. get into hell, and then this just keeps playing. Like, this is kind of nice. Oh, it's still going. Yeah. Oh, it's still going. Yeah. It's like, I, to- I could tolerate this for 15 minutes. Oh, man. 30 it's minutes fine. later. So with that, <laughs> hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is might be a very fun episode that's less... Uh, I don't know where this episode's going to go. Uh, I have a lot of feelings about this episode. It's a lot of, there's a lot of surprises in store. <laughs> surprises. We're yeah. trying uh, to figure out how to talk about this book. Yeah, yeah. So if anybody has been around for a couple of the seasons, and I'm using air quotes there when I say seasons because... What is a season? I don't know. For us, it's when we decide to try something new again. If anybody's listened to any of the old uh, seasons, then you'll know that we did an episode with a book that was six issues, and it was by one of our favorite writers, Brian K. Vaughn, Mm -hmm. and it was called We Stand on Guard, (laughs) which in my memory still stands as one of my most pleasurable episodes. It was... It was the funnest episode to record. It was the funnest episode to record, mostly because Tim and I just hated almost everything about that book. (laughs) The book was probably the most painful one we've read so far. I can't believe how bad that book was. Yeah. So we just spent a lot of time saying goofy things and making fun of that book. This book I don't feel as inclined to make fun of, mostly because, well... It's about racism, and I don't want to poke fun at that issue because it's not inherently funny. However, I do feel that this book does a lot of things to really hurt the reputation of critical discussions of race. (laughs) So I'm not sure if I'm going to go that far. uh, Well, okay, I guess I I shouldn't say that. Okay, all right, I'll backpedal a little bit there and say that no... The issue of race is not minimized in this book or made light, but... It's almost as if everything else in the book is diminished so that it can talk about race more strongly. Mm. I think it's because the presentation is so weak that I find that the discussion of race inherently is weak as well. So I will try, I'm not going to, I don't want to make fun in that regard, uh, but I do wonder how we will compose ourselves as we go through this episode talking about Destroyer. So to start, Tim, did you compose for us a nice... A nice synopsis. Yeah, I've got a little synopsis here. All right, let's for the viewers that haven't read Destroyer and are wondering, hey, should I pick this book up? <laughs> you give them, break it down for them so they know what the hell's going on. Okay, so in this book, Frankenstein's monster, after more than two hundred years in Antarctica, comes out of hiding to seek revenge on humanity. 
Dr. Josephine Baker, a brilliant scientist, is the last living descendant of Victor Frankenstein. When her 12-year-old son, Akai, is murdered by a Chicago police officer, she uses nanotechnology to bring him back from the dead. Akai is resurrected just in time to help fight the monster of legend and the agents of a shadowy government institution known only as The Lab. That's a good synopsis. Thank you. That is actually more coherent than I <laughs> thought it was going to be. Well, I had to leave a lot out because there's, there's a lot a of lot other stuff out. that happens that yeah. is of little to no consequence. But I think if you needed a through line, that's Yeah, that's, that's essentially what is happening yeah. in the book. Yeah, so there you go. I will say if you are even mildly interested in, in reading this book, I would say right now stop the episode, go read the book. Because, not to say there's spoilers, but that is the most bare narrative. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot more going on, and we're going to talk about it, but I don't know. I guess if you are interested, go check it out for yourself before jumping into this. But if you don't, if you want to hear what we have to say first, then cool. And it should be said, too, that we have read more than a few positive reviews about this book. So people are responding positively to the story. Yes. We are just assholes. <laughs> maybe you we're, we're we're definitely snobs. I think in the area of narrative, yeah, complexity, narrative, narrative, <laughs> narrative, narrative. Hey, hey, Tim, tell me, tell us about how complex we are with with the narrative, narrative. I mean, you know, when narrative, narrative, <laughs> when, when one narrative meets another narrative and they and fall in love, narrates the narrative of the narrative. Yeah, or narrative narrators. Yeah, I will say there was nothing. I did feel. A little be begrudged when I looked on Amazon. Just to, I just wanted to see what the general the general pop sure was was saying about it, and uh, it's a hard four stars. Right, but we're also not here to give reviews. No, 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 no. We will talk about what what we like about a thing and what we don't like about a thing. Yeah. But we're mostly here to pick things apart for their literary merits. Which yes, there are some. There's thumb. There's there is literary merit nestled in there, tucked tucked away in some corners. Narratively speaking, we would both agree, Tim, if I can speak for you, that not such a great story. Yeah, I think we can both agree. Okay. On that. So, what was it that what was it that struck you about this? What was your problem as you read through this book? It sort of started right away, to be honest. I had read very little about what this book was going to be before I picked it up. And actually, for the last year or so, I've been really excited about reading this book based solely on the premise as a book in which a 12-year-old black child is killed and his mother, being the last descendant of Frankenstein, uses science to bring him back from the dead. That on its face was a very intriguing concept to me and something yeah. I was way into. If you threw that at me, I'd be in. I'd be a right. game. And I had this book sitting on my shelf for about half a year mm-hmm. before I even cracked the front cover because I'd been waiting for us to read it for this podcast. And I opened the front cover and the first thing staring me in the face is Frankenstein's monster sitting on a makeshift ice throne in Antarctica. Yeah. So that immediately threw off my whole reading because I wasn't even, I hadn't even prepared myself for reading a thing in which the monster himself would appear. I thought we were just going to be looking at a future scenario in which the mythos of Victor Frankenstein and his efforts were informing 
through backdrop. Mm-hmm. But suddenly you're dropped in a story where the monster itself takes a sort of center stage. It looms really large over the opening of this narrative mm-hmm. to the point where you almost feel as if the premise that you had read going in is somehow relegated to a second seat. I mean, it does, uh, the opening of the book, it's multiple pages. Well, how many, I mean, what, five? I'm I not mean, even it's, sure it's a good when. chunk of the beginning of the book that is yeah. dedi- just this focusing just on the monster. Right. Just flipping through here, it looks like we don't even get Dr. Baker's first appearance until I am still turning pages. She still hasn't shown up. There she is. That's got to be at least 10 pages into the first issue. Yeah, which is not a problem necessarily, but it is a bit concerning when we know that this is six, this is six issues and essentially... 45% of the first issue hasn't even given us our main characters yet. Right. That is a little concerning. So the opening of the book seems to be setting up, or it is actually working to set up this idea of the monster coming. And I think that this discussion about where the monster, how the monster is positioned at the beginning of the book is really a symptom of what we had the biggest problem with, which is that this story is frankly too big. <laughs> frankly. is <laughs> <laughs> too big for six issues. Absolutely. This, this is really where I think the problem lies, is that we've got a story where we are talking about the original monster created by Frankenstein. Who's been hiding out for 200-some years. Yeah. We are talking about race... In America, racial violence, police violence in America. Mm -hmm. We're talking about nanotechnology, transhumanism, transcendence, event horizon. Is that what you called it, Tim? Of sort of the next phase of human evolution? I'm not sure what the actual name is for it. It's a nice word or words. Yeah. It means Uh, something. Family strife, a shady techno bio organization that may or may not be attached to the government in some way yeah and a smattering of like pseudo literary illusion and this is all taking place in six issues right if that sounds like it doesn't make any sense then yes (laughs) yes it's so much it's this huge pot of things boiling yeah and even the plot doesn't it, it doesn't follow that narrative thread because we have the the monster chilling in the arctic he goes swimming with some whales and then those whales get killed by whalers and this is around the moment where the monster re-engages with humanity yeah i mean this i think is the first time it sees humans since it went to antarctica right and through some other destructive things that happen decides it's not even necessarily clear what the monster decides, but it's coming back to, well, it's coming to America for Mm -hmm. some reason. Well, I think it decides to come to America because of the weird right-wing TV it starts watching. The reason that we're struggling to talk about this is because there is a lot of these moments in the book where it doesn't explain exactly what is going on. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in the sense of clever illusion or clever writing that shows and doesn't tell and so you can miss things there's just literally moments where there's gaps gaps in, yeah. in information that 
you have to then fill in the blanks yourself, but there really isn't any hard evidence to say that that is what you're supposed to read. Because we get the idea that Frankenstein is coming from the characters in the lab, this director who oversees things. Yeah. The monster's coming back, and she wants Dr. Josephine Baker for some reason. We're not even quite sure what at that point, but... In the idea that Frankenstein's coming back, or Frankenstein's monster is coming back, we're not even necessarily clear. Those two things are not related, are they? Her, her, the the lab director trying to get Josephine Baker back? They are, well, trying to get Dr. Baker back is in response to To the the monster monster coming. coming, Okay. Which implies that the monster is going to the lab, but where the monster actually goes for reasons we're not even clear, is the secret, isolated home of Dr. Dr. Baker, Baker. which she has literally established out in the middle of nowhere to keep from being found, yet the monster gets there to her somehow for, again, motivations that are unclear. Yeah, and I mean, that's a very big thing, too, is there's a lot of motivation that is is incredibly ambiguous, implied... I wouldn't even call it implied. It's, I, at some points, I wonder if there was ever any decision made on what the the reasoning behind some characters' motivations are, because the monster is there to destroy. All it says is destroy. I don't know if it ever actually has an explained motivation besides to kill stuff, right. which we'll get to when we talk about the monster. Which, but, but I think, so this is yeah. this is the issue, and this is, I think, partly why we, even as we're talking now, are struggling to articulate what's happening, is because there's so much coming at you so fast, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of rationale between characters and their choices, and so ultimately you find that you just kind of have to go along for the ride right. and say, well... Okay, this person. The only I think the only character that really has solid, ex, you know, solid rationale is Doctor Baker. Right. And what I mean by that is that you can see the pieces that form the whole. Mm-hmm. Other characters, you you don't get that. You get pieces of them, but there's no, co- you know, there's no cohesion of the ideas. It's very clear that this story was formed around the idea of a descendant of Frankenstein who resurrects her son using technology. Yeah. Everything else around that seems like it was gathered just to surround this narrative, just Mm -hmm. to make it, I don't know, give it some kind of foundation, give it some kind of background noise. It's hard to really say. Right. Maybe to make it more exciting. I don't know. Right. To make it more of a comic book story. Yeah. Because a lot of the stuff in here does feel very bombastic. And, right. you know, hyperbolic, right? I mean, yeah. shadow lab organization with nefarious experiments and mm-hmm. plans of dom- world domination or something. You know, these are very right. c- cliche tropes of that. <laughs> giant um, robots. Yeah, giant robots. <laughs> I mean, in terms of Fighting, like, lots of body parts flying all over yeah, the place. Yeah, graphic violence and, yeah, all that stuff. So, I mean, maybe this is a writer... Because this is his first time writing a comic book. Oh, is it? Okay. I, th- I think so. I thought he had written one before, but maybe... Uh, okay. I might have gotten that wrong. I-, I thought this was his first. So maybe this is a writer coming in and writing his first comic and, and thinking that readers need a certain amount of excitement to keep them reading. I don't know. Either way, I think ultimately it, 
it fails in that account because I found that this was really just kind of a mess of a story. Because of all of these things that got tacked on, Tim is currently looking up something, so I think I'm just... (laughs) Well, I'm trying to... I'm Googling uh, the writer, Victor LaVale, to see Mm -hmm. what we've got. Because the man is a multiple Hugo Award winning author. This isn't... I mean, he's not a slouch, but I think I think you might have something in the sense that if if this is his first foray into comic books, I think the storytelling betrays some sense of what you can do on the page narratively, in say in a in a book versus a, a comic, right? In the sense that you need to, there's more. I'm not even trying to quantify it, to be honest. There's another element to this, which is also that he has an artist taking his words and turning them to image. So there's also this idea that you've gone from a form that is roughly singular in its in creative output until you talk with editors and you know give your you know workshop your material. When you're creating the content, it's really, it's you. It's you writing your story, right? And in this case, maybe he's not quite attuned to that collaborative side of let me give you a script and you form my thoughts, you know, into images. Maybe there was some disconnect there. I mean, I'm not, I have no idea. I'm purely speaking hypothetical here. So this is the man's first comic book. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, so, you know, and that's fine. First comics are not usually people's best comics. They're never people's best comics. So that's fine. I think also there, to, to speak to this book in terms of its literary quality and its genre or its medium quality, I think that the other reason that this book suffers is because of the the, the imagery, the artwork in this is pretty lackluster. Yeah, you had more to say about that than I did. Well, I, my biggest gripe was the panel layout, right? which to me seems very wasteful. Most of the pages in the book are between four and five page or four and five panels, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you're writing something ongoing. I think Marvel shoots their 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 standard is something between five and six panels per page. But again, we're talking about hero comics that are hundreds of issues long. Right. So things are a little different. In my mind, when I look at a lot of these panels and I see the what's being depicted in the panels, I find that a lot of times you would get these big images of things that didn't weren't particularly in, interesting or engaging or even necessary to be that large with very little dialogue going on in each panel. So you get these big, chunky panels, close-up shot of somebody maybe, and a single word bubble, and this is occupying a quarter of the page, basically. And that's just that's just wasted space. And when you only have six issues to cover a, a story this large, you know, I would imagine you should consolidate those panels, maybe have a higher panel rate to try mm-hmm. to tell more story. Because more story was really needed. So for me, I think even on the, the level of the medium, there was a failure on the part of the team to craft something that was... That, that was successful. Yeah. The, even even though the writer maybe was new to this, I felt like the art the artist could have done more to help maybe give more narrative space. I don't know. I'm not here to like say hey, this is what happened and what didn't happen, but I, I looking at the book, I think there's a there is a failure on the part of the layout of the just the 
the books themselves in terms of panel layout and stuff like that. Yeah, I do think that a lot of the things we're having issue with do represent a sense that maybe the team didn't quite think out all the possibilities of a comic book. Like mm-hmm. What comic... Uh, what what comic book storytelling can do because it does seem like there's a lot going on here trying to shoehorn tired comic book tropes into it mm-hmm. the idea that we need some kind of big bombastic action that we mm-hmm. need robots and fight <laughs> sequences i was really when i first when i first hit on this story i really thought that it was going to be something closer to the original Frankenstein, not to say that I wanted a retelling of that, mm. but that there were going to be elements that had more to do with ex- the acceptance of a society played against that race, that backdrop of race. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think there's an interesting story to tell there. And it is all of the race stuff in this book that I find the most engaging. And that's the stuff yeah. that I really want. Not all this action and the entire concept of the lab as a thing as a shadowy organization this monolithic villain sure. is taking up so much space in the narrative it, it shouldn't even be there in my opinion yeah i mean here's my simple solution and i i, I don't want us to linger too much on this because there are other more important things mm-hmm. to talk about but just thinking about what you said and how this book feels overstuffed i mean the easy Solution: If you wanted to maintain even a small amount of this bombastic comic bookness, tell a story about a mother who loses a son and brings him back to life using highly advanced technology mm-hmm. from her work, maybe? Yeah. And then the lab that she used to create this new child, or to re- re-resurrect her child, is then after the, the kid, because by legal standards, the kid would belong to them at that point, because it's been created through their technology, which then could lead you down a very interesting discussion about the whole like genetic ownership thing and like how, who owns your, your cells and Mm -hmm. stuff like that could have been very fascinating and strip out the whole uh, Frankenstein thing and just make (laughs) it basically like ET. Right. Right. Even if Frankenstein's monster still exists in the narrative without the lab, all of this could have been accomplished just by explaining the woman is brilliant she works as a professor at a university. Those things are already in the story. She builds a lab in her home that is still already in the story. Yeah. She is a descendant of Frankenstein. That is still in the story. Frankenstein's monster shows up because he wants to get revenge on the bloodline. That is all still already in the story. Mm-hmm. Nothing extra has to be done. This laboratory is just... It is there as a comic book trope because it seems that we need a villain. When we don't, we can have ambiguous relationships between these characters. Sure. The monster isn't evil, but the monster is angry. Dr. Baker isn't evil, but she is angry. And she does have a very villainous... I won't say motivation, but she has a villainous aim. She, like the monster, wants to tear down human society. There's a parallel there. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, let's then let's talk about this monster because we've been uh, we've been dancing around him. We mentioned him as the opening to this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't put something at the opening of your book unless there's some significance there. Right. So let's let's talk about this monster a little bit because to me he was a very striking piece of this of the probably first three issues. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought this was he was going to become a much more prominent like have more 
there was going to be more. Or that he was going to be a bigger symbol. Yeah, that, that, that he, he was to be, going yeah. to end up becoming something something larger, mm-hmm. which ultimately I would say didn't happen, and he just became a monster. I don't know. We can kind of work that out as we go. But, yeah, so the monster, he's a, he's pretty fascinating in that he has this long journey on his way from Antarctica to, where were they located? Was it Montana? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> It says in the book. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, Yes, you're right. Missoula, Montana. Montana. Okay. So he's got this long trek. He's got to work his way up there. And as he's working his way up, he encounters a lot of different groups of people. They are all from very different uh, world groups, cultural groups. And each time he meets them, there is a pattern of gruesome violence that follows any time he encounters a group of people. And to me, that was really interesting primarily because with each group, the same thing would always happen. And that was that each time he met a group of people, they immediately wanted to use him to further their aims, which was like an immediately strange thing with that opening uh, opening of a situation with the Greenpeace people. Right. The Greenpeace people see him destroy a whaling ship, and immediately this younger woman, when he approaches their boat, decides that he is going to be an instrument for the destruction of the whaling industry. Yes. Not a, she doesn't consult on this fact. She just sort of relays this to the monster. You will be this weapon for us in this fight. Right, right. And then she proceeds to show him some, I guess, documentaries or something. I don't know. Maybe to, educating him? To but. try to show him how horrible the world is. It's very right. unclear exactly what's going on there. It almost seems like she's catching him up historically on what happened in the world. And it almost seems like that that informing is what triggers his desire to destroy humanity. Yeah, even though it's not humanity he wants to destroy, but just the Frankenstein bloodline. See, this is where things get very confusing. <laughs> but maybe it is humanity also, but maybe and he's just starting he's gonna the, from the Frankensteins up. He's going to start with the Fs, <laughs> then go back to the As, and then forward again. You know... He's a monster. He doesn't know his ABCs, guys. He, I mean, he can speak. He does know them, right? He, if we know, he speaks a little bit. If we know the story of Frankenstein, he does learn right. alphabet. It's interesting. It's interesting to me that he's speaking English this whole time because I could have sworn he was like German, a German or something. Yeah. yeah, German. I mean, it's fine. He could be multilingual. Sure, he's had. He spent a lot of time. In, in Antarctica. Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to penguins. Anyways, we're losing uh, losing it again. It's so fine. so the monster starts with this group and then proceeds to meet all these other groups of people. And it's always a group and they are always very rigidly defined ideologically. So he meets the the whaler the anti-whalers, he meets a group of migrants, he mm. meets a group of border douchebags. What would be the what do they call themselves? No, oh. they're not the Border Patrol. That's not what I meant. No, but they're the, those... like mercenaries. Right. Essentially a bunch of white guys who sit on the border with their guns and play police, I guess, would be the way to describe them. Right. They, I think, might actually be deputized. Like, legally, they have the right to be there. It doesn't matter. He meets them. He also... Does he meet anybody? He meets some pigs. That was all. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, the only beings that he seems sad about having accidentally killed. Yeah. And then he meets Dr. Baker. Is that right? Is that the, the, the progression? Yes. Okay. So each time he meets these people, they, they suddenly think this guy is 
the answer to our problems. The whalers, the anti-whalers think he will be their weapon of righteousness to defeat the whaling industry. The immigrants think that he is an angel sent from heaven to help them across the desert. Well, not across the desert even, just across the wall from Mexico into the United States. Oh, okay. The border patrol guys think that he will be a weapon to stop the immigrants from getting in. The pigs have really nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with this guy. I'm not even really sure what... Yeah, the the pigs is an interesting thing because it does seem like when he comes upon the pig farm that he is trying to release the pigs. He's liberating the pigs. And in the course of trying to free the pigs, he accidentally brings the whole place down. Yeah. Kills all the pigs. That also doesn't make any sense. But I guess it's... Again, it's another convenient narrative <laughs> accident. And he, this also, in, this incident also in, enrages him. Yeah. It, well, so we'll get to that. So then, right. so then lastly, he gets Dr. Baker, who we find out has apparently always planned on finding him and has specialized a needle in the bride to take control of the Frankenstein's monster that she, which she will then use to further her anger at the world. We haven't even discussed what the bride is. Oh, I thought you mentioned... Oh, I'm sorry. The, the bride's a big robot. Well, you said it was a big robot, right? Oh, I kept saying robot, but okay, I never the bride, said the bride. Oh, yet. you didn't? No. Oh, I'm sorry. The, but, br- the bride yeah. is the big robot. The bride is the big robot that also is has merged with... Her husband. Her husband. Or not even husband. They didn't I even, think they're married. Okay. We'll I get to they're, Maybe they're married. See, here we go, guys. Honestly, I don't think it matters. Okay. But her... Right. Her, her partner and her lover, and uh, Akai's father. Yes. Okay. So, so the monster. So, so Tim, I've been really talking for a long time now, and you just keep looking I'm, at your book because apparently I'm boring the shit out of you. I'm just trying to find. I'm trying to find sense in the world. <laughs> so, the interesting thing that I found as I was reading these early early interactions between the monster and people around him is that there seemed to be some kind of commentary between what this monster represented actually mm-hmm. and what people wanted him to represent for them. Right. And I don't know, I kind of wanted to hear your side of this because I have my own opinions on it, but I haven't really got a lot, haven't talked to you very much about this. So I was wondering, when you saw this, like, what were you sort of taking from this this repeated this pattern of engagement and, you know, uh, assumption. Yeah, to me... Appropriation, (laughs) if you want to call it that. Well, to me, it was very interesting in the sense that these people were all projecting their own ideologies onto the sort of blank that the monster represents. It oftentimes has very religious trappings Mm. and seems to... the, The monster at times seems to represent a savior, a destroyer, maybe like an avenging angel sort of figure. Yeah. Um, the migrants in the in the Mexico desert, or at least one child, actively refers to him as an angel that he prayed for. He thought he was going to die, but he had been praying for salvation, and God sent this angel in the form of the destroyer. And so the, the migrants follow... The monster through the desert to the wall where he then proceeds to tear down the wall. And that's when the migrants sort of realize that they have been mistaken all along. Yeah. 
the, the wall falls on them and they die. They all die, yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's actually really interesting that you brought up that I had been aware of but didn't – or subconsciously I was aware of but didn't quite click was that all of the people who interact with him all believe that their dis- their choice and their ideology is the right choice. Right. I think that's very – like they – all see themselves as the good guy, mm-hmm. if that, you know what I mean? Not, yeah. Now, the migrants, that's, I think that, that one takes on a different role because they're not necessarily thinking we're good guys, but we obviously know that they are, they are victims, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't view them as, well, I'm sure some people would say differently, but, right? Those people are dumb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those people don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, if you, if you have any kind of human emotion, you would know, that, okay, this is, they are suffering and, and trying to, Right, they are worthy of sympathy. They They are are sympathetic characters. Yes, they're sympathetic characters. So anyways, the point is that all of these people seem to have this belief that what they're doing is the the right thing, the good thing, and he is then killing them. (laughs) But it's also not that he's killing them, but that he, his actions are destructive and they're just caught in the way. Yes. The monster is never active, aside from the whalers. He's not malicious. Right, except for the whalers. Actually, yeah. no. I'm sorry. It, the 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 migrants that die are they're, they're the only group that he doesn't mean to kill. And the pigs. And the pigs. That <laughs> draws an unfair comparison. Yeah, kind of ugly there. I mean, it, it does characterize itself as the destroyer. The first time we see him in the comic, he is swimming with the whales. Like yeah. I said. So it does paint him as a person who is close to nature, who is akin to animals in yeah. a way. So maybe that draws an unfair comparison to the migrants. I don't know. Well, but he doesn't actually sympathize with the migrants. He no. really doesn't care about them. He, They're just <laughs> there's they, a bunch of dumb Mexicans are, who get in the way. <laughs> they are just ascribing uh, their beliefs yeah. onto him. Right. So. And, and that was something where I also was a little bit concerned because I started to wonder to myself, well, is the writer making some kind of commentary on all of these people with their ideologies? It's all the same bad ideas. Right. Do you know what I mean? I, I started to wonder, are you saying that now I really don't want to get into like the, the nuance of this, but broadly speaking, are you saying that people who don't want to see whales being mass murdered are equal to men who want to shoot migrants who cross the border? Is that what you're saying? Is that these people that are fighting for, you know, the ecosystem and that now I know that there are subcultures within that group that could Mm -hmm. be problematic and I understand that. But I'm saying, you know, okay, if we look at it purely as people who just view whaling as a a inhumane thing, are you saying that's the same or as ideologically corrupt as the people who think migrants should not get into our country? Right. Is that what we're doing? And, and, and it, then where does that leave the migrants in this discussion? Because they also seemed to be punished for following the monster and ascribing their beliefs onto him. Mm-hmm. Or is this purely a discussion about how we should not be blindly ascribing our ideologies to any one thing we think will save us or or help us. I, I don't know. There's just there's so much yeah. ambiguity there. It seems to be drawing a neater comparison between the whalers and the men waiting at the border to shoot down 
the Migrants Crossing. The Migrants Crossing do seem to share some kind of space with the people who, the anti-whalers, like the Greenpeace people, but it's different in the sense that the only group, he, the only groups that are inactive in their dis- destruction who are more or less just bystanders are the migrants trying to cross the border mm-hmm. and the pigs in the pig farm. Yeah. So it does seem that there's, I don't think it's an intentional comparison, but it does feel like an unconscious comparison between these two groups. And maybe it has more to do with captivity and some people will call uh, factory farming animal slavery in certain ways. So maybe the comparison is being made there for the indignity of these two groups, not necessarily saying that (laughs) these migrants are only as valuable as the pigs in the farm. It is very confusing because the, the symbolism there isn't really being recognized. And I think that's also falling to a lack of cohesion in Mm -hmm. these plot elements. Okay. You had a very interesting thought about later portions of the, the comic and Mm. this idea of how, Frankenstein, or the monster continues. I'm going to make that mistake the whole time. Hey, man, we're human. Frankenstein's monster, I think it should just be Frankenstein's monster needs a name. He needs... Tony. He needs, <laughs> Tony Frankenstein. <laughs> Tony Fram, Tony Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> he just needs to be accepted, legitimized. I mean, I guess by technically he is a Frankenstein. He is a Frankenstein. He's the son of Frankenstein. Right. So... Like people should stop being such assholes. I mean, like, right. don't take this man. Actually, uh, uh, it's the monster. His name's the monster. Yeah. No, his name's the monster Frankenstein. Right, monster Frankenstein. Monster Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein, comma monster. Yeah, yeah. So Perfect. I think it's fine if you call him Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. But you you were talking about the way in which he is still being used as an oh, instrument, yeah. or at least the, the attempt to use him as an instrument later on in the book. Right, right, because we were talking about, we were listing off, when does he being appropriated in this way, or attempt to be appropriated in this way, to become somebody's tool of moving their ideology forward? And I thought, I brought up the fact that actually even Dr. Baker does this, right? Dr. Right. Baker, at a certain point in the, in the end of the book, we realize that she has been plotting to get the monster and bring it under her control in order to seek out her vengeance for her, a, her son's death. <laughs> which is a big fucking surprise to the rest of us, <laughs> but is also kind of cool in mm-hmm. a way. There are so many ways in which I wish that was the primary motivation of the novel. Oh. Uh, the comic, whatever. Graphic novel. Graphic novel. Sure, whatever. Novel. Yeah, graphic. I mean, it's, it's interesting only in that it, brings her into a whole nother discussion about where, like how we should view her as mm-hmm. a character, right? Because for so much of the book, we did see her as a good, as a, the, the good guy on some level. She was always the better guy. In a, you know what I mean? Well, I do think that there are traces of something not being right in her view of the world. Yeah. Because she does view the lives of the agents who come there as disposable. She kind of views the lives of everyone from the beginning, from the outset of the uh, of the comic, as mm-hmm. disposable. Yeah. And it's just her and her son that, that her universe has clamped down to those two entities, and that's it. Everything else should be taken out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, 
even her romance with pliers. <laughs> Who we're we're told that's a code name. We I don't think we're ever given his actual name. I don't think we get his name. We we skimmed through really quick before the show started to try to find his name. We couldn't find it. Right, because I'm if it if it's there, I missed it in the first read through. Yeah, I think they just call him pliers. Mm-hmm. So even her relationship with pliers, that's really the only time she move she breaks breaks out of her shell, her cocoon mm-hmm. of, and I guess with the the head of the lab as well. In some ways, she does have a bond with her, like a sort of a paternal bond. Like a mentor, Yeah, there is something. there is something there. Sure. And I think, again, in both cases, these could have been really interesting things. Again, mm-hmm. if, you, if we did want to keep the lab, if this was going to be a bigger story, there could be something really interesting there because the idea that this person has opened herself up to only two people, and in both cases, those two people have ultimately cut her off mm-hmm. in in her most vulnerable moment, i.e. when she becomes pregnant with her child. What I mean vul- vulnerable is in, like, she is, that's a scary step in life, right? I mean, you're bringing right. a new person in this world, and to suddenly be rejected by the only two people in your life is a really compelling narrative idea. Right. It's an, it's a very an emotional thing and it could have helped us to better understand Dr. Baker. However, we never really get any of that. Yeah, because there's just not space for those things to develop. Yeah. But if they had been developed, it could have been a, a really interesting thing. So, uh, anyways. So, yeah. So, we have to sort of wrestle with that with the monster thing. And that kind of leads us into another realm of talking about this book because when we find out that the monster was always planned to be Dr. Baker's tool of vengeance. So when with her son's intercession into that plan, she then turns very quickly on her own son, right? When she decides to activate... Momentarily, yeah. Well, she decides to activate this voice command that we find out she has put into everything she's ever created, Mm -hmm. which would give her full control over her son, we ultimately find out that her son has figured out a way to bypass those commands because he's super smart nanotech boy. Right. But the idea there, in that, in that moment, what we find out is that she has even planned to have a way to take full control over her own son, mm-hmm. the person that she cares the most about in her effort to seek vengeance, which really turns the corner in terms of how we read her. Right. Because she goes from being somebody who we can say has some some goodness in her to actually questioning maybe she doesn't. I mean, in that moment, she's about as bad as the head of the lab. Yeah, absolutely. I th- Rather than that being a bad thing, I think that that's actually one of the better moments of the narrative as well mm-hmm. because... Well, I didn't mean it bad as in... No, 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 oh. yeah. But I, it's a moment when her character deepens in a way that we've seen the thread of this. The possibility has always been there. The narrative mm-hmm. has been building to this point. And that's the... <laughs> I guess that's a, the, a place where I wanted the story to take off from. Ah. Uh, it only took six, six issues <laughs> to get there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which sometimes stories got to spin their wheels a little bit before they get to the thing. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was really great in the sense that it, it it brings us to a lot of questions about the biomedical ethics of everything yes. that's happening. And I would like to say that moment is actually really interesting as well because it completely calls into question her very philosophy of this idea, which only a few pages, maybe maybe it was an issue before, she get, she explains this philosophy to her son. 
telling him that he's the next step evolutionarily of the humankind and that one day she will be viewed as this founding woman or founding mother of the next stage in human evolution and some would love her and some would hate her. Right. She gives that whole speech about it. But what's interesting there is in that moment when she turns on her son, she's actually completely rejecting all of that philosophy because the philosophy is that these are humans just like everyone else, which starts to get in that realm of like, is AI alive? Do they have Mm -hmm. a conscience? Right. We start, they, she starts to breach that question. But then in that moment of, of attempting full co- control of her son, she's completely rejecting that and saying, no, you're, you're just a machine for my plans. I don't Which know. Which is really fascinating because it begs the question, mm. can we even fully understand this idea? Can we as humans actually let go? I didn't see it as necessarily rejecting She's uh, treating her him sons. like a tool. She's treating him like a computer. Sure. But also there there is a tone of reprimand in there and a tone of command that is very parental as if to say she's she's exerting a level of control over him that's more like rearing more like saying no this isn't the thing you're going to do this is the thing you're going to do it's it's foggy territory because it has this element of this element of outright control to it sure and does raise that question of of bodily autonomy right you know well but the difference is that you can tell a child no sure but there's a difference between saying akai don't do this and akai i'm going to physically restrain you and not Mm -hmm. allow you to do this right and i think that that different element comes with the the addition of technology. Yeah. I don't think it's denying his humanity, but I do think it is robbing him of his autonomy. Even though I think in that moment it's only meant to be temporary, just long enough for her to achieve this aim. Yeah, but at that point, once you know that you really don't have full control, do you not lose? I mean, you, you know what I mean? If you if you found out right now that at any moment someone could just tell you to stop to tell you to do whatever they wanted you to do. Would you ever really feel in control of yourself again? Well, I think that is a very human question to ask, right? Because we don't know where our abilities to control our lives come from. In so many ways, we are not in control of our lives. We can make choices, but there's nothing to say that those choices aren't already predetermined. I mean, this is like the big philosophical question, right? Like, what is free will? And I think that this just places technology more central to the question than say like God or something. Yeah. This is sort of that that transhuman territory where evolution is dictated by science and technology rather than any kind of biological and perhaps spiritual, you know, religious component. Right. Mm-hmm. I see that. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of in terms of this bioethics and biomedical ethics, what what you got really attached to was the idea of this transhumanism, the, the progression right. forward, which is something that I, I I knew actually less than you about, so it wasn't something I was keen. I mean, I was aware of it, but uh, you really sort of opened my eyes to this as we were talking about it prior to the show and as we were reading the book. So, like, what about this struck you? What, what about what about this was so striking in regards to transhumanism? I think it 
does begin in that moment that you were mentioning when she gives that speech to Akai and talking about the next stage in humanity. Mm-hmm. Because in that, she's also, she's giving us a way to think about the title of this book because she talks about herself as the mother of this new, the next stage of humanity, but also as the destroyer of the what we knew status quo yeah what we knew humans to be yeah which i think she actually does use the word destroyer and she relishes that fact even she the the way she's drawn and the way she's speaking in that moment she is smiling and she seems she seems to think of that that the position of destroyer with some pride because this is what she's going for Mm -hmm. i think there's a couple different things going on in the Akai is the most advanced form of this. It's not even quite transhuman. I think it's he's one step in that direction because he is still. Well, we know that he will eventually, right? She makes right. The, she tells him that well, oh, one, yes, at one point right. you will no longer even be flesh and blood. Right. You will be completely is, nanotechnology. He is continuing to evolve. Yeah, the nanotechnology is rebuilding him as his cells continue to die, and eventually they will overtake his biological cells to where he is. Completely nanotechnology, like you said. Yeah. <clears throat> On the other side, we also have Akai's father, Pliers, who has been merged, and we don't know to what extent or how that works exactly, but he's been merged with the robotic exoskeleton of the bride. Yeah. We're not really told if it's his biological components inserted into the machine or if it's just his brain uploaded into this machine body, which is much closer to the concept of transhumanity Mm. than what Akai is currently exhibiting. Um, But we do know that he is merged with the mech permanently, that Mm -hmm. it is a process that once done cannot be undone. So his biological body is... It it's, might as well be dead. It's gone, yeah. Right. He's is. He is robot now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's I, more machine I, than man. I is robot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a question that I didn't expect to explore. Because when, again, going into this pretty cold with just the premise of the boy who had been murdered by police and then was brought back to life, I wasn't expecting nanotechnology or this... Uh, higher science fiction concept Mm. to enter into it at all. So I was really fascinated by this idea that we were, it was pointing not into a sort of static present where we're using available technology and kind of twisting the way it works, but it was looking much further into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this, this all kind of led me into the thinking about how this functions within the discussion of race, because I mean, that's really what's revolving around Mm, all of this. And I think what's really interesting in that regard is that if we start to talk about this idea of humans evolving into technological beings, then we're really starting to talk about an elimination of race, right? I mean, this would... I think that's a thing that comes up in these discussions of transhumanity. That is kind of the end game in that way, right? Is Mm -hmm. at a certain point, as... Akai will ultimately be. Will he even be black anymore? Can you can you right. say he's a black boy when all of his cells have been completely eliminated and he is purely nanotechnology? Even if he outwardly expresses 
African-American. Right. Can we really say that? I mean, that's kind of the whole question, right? If you replaced mm-hmm. a single piece of a boat until the entire boat was completely replaced, is it the same boat? Is it a different boat? How do we categorize it? And that's sort of the right. same thing here is, well, is this the final phase where we eliminate all of these ta- in all of these confrontations between race when when we can finally put this to bed right mm-hmm. is that and she, and I don't think that's ever really brought up in the book right and I don't even know if that's what Dr. Baker is planning when she's developing this stuff but there is the suggestion there right I mean this is the next step it's it's going to eliminate this whole idea yeah I wouldn't say that I, I don't think I see anything in here that would suggest that Dr. 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 Baker is considering uh, this kind of, I don't know if you'd call it erasure or if you'd call it sort of a, a leveling of the racial plane. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's considering that at all in the sense that uh, her her thinking is still in the present moment in the very near future in terms of her revenge plot. Yeah, because I guess in a lot of ways her fear actually is about him being profiled and attacked because of his status as a new type of race, right? right yeah. The nano the nano boy, right? Now now yeah. he's going to face a new type of anxiety and cultural yeah. backlash because but, he's yeah, now right. not now he's that's not just that you're black, now you're black and not even human. Right. So by bringing him back, he is othered a second time. Yeah. Maybe more removed from well now he's removed from other groups right groups that he would have originally belonged to because yeah. of his uh, transhuman nature right so, I mean which is just interesting I mean and I don't know if that's I don't know if that is meant to be played out for the reader to uh, to be able to criticize Dr. Baker right because this seems like an, an, om- an omission on her part right she had the opportunity to do something trans transcendent but she ultimately mm-hmm. transgressed well i think to trans <laughs> that's an interesting question or where do yeah because right. i feel like to transcend you must transgress and i think the components of this and this is why i think dr baker is an actually compelling character because every action she takes is performed through the idea of scientific progress. There is a sense that um, in order to achieve the next stage of her desires or her plan, something must uh, something must be created. She talks a lot about invention mm-hmm. and you know, retools that the old adage of like necessity is the mother of invention. Right. I mean, it's a lot of she sees a need for change, and so she creates the conditions, or maybe even yeah. I think there's room to consider Akai as a tool that she's created. Sure. To achieve a certain. I don't even end. know if she's consciously aware of the fact that she's made him as a tool. There, right. There's a. I mean, there's, not intentionally, there's a, at least. There's an but, obvious. There's an obviousness to the fact that she loves her son and at the same time is blinded by her and her drive to re- to revenge her son. And in that revenge, she she de she, ironically enough dehumanizes her son in certain mm-hmm. ways when she's when she's taking away his freedom. Right. And 
I mean, there's a lot. When you, when you talk about taking the freedom of a black person away, there's a lot to say that now both of them are black. Mm-hmm. But the idea is still kind of there, right? That right. even in her anger towards the system of repression that takes the freedom away from black people, she willingly takes the freedom away from, I mean, her, 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 her husband and her son, mm-hmm. both black people. And she, without question, f- takes their autonomy from them. Right, or at least attempts to. She never... Well, she doesn't get a Kai. Right. But she does... She is able to do it with her husband. And so mm-hmm. there is this this sort of... There is something there, right? With this right. idea that she is she is the mother of invention, right? She is the mm-hmm. creator and the evolutionary progressor. But she's also the... I don't want to use overly strong language to describe her. But there is, there right. is something to her being, in a lot of ways, a slave driver. Well, she is very... She's a pragmatist. We even see her pragmatic way of looking at the world long before her son dies. You know, she yeah, has that right, whole right. lecture about the worm and wants him to dissect the worm. And we see, I think this scene is meant to portray the differences between the two of them yeah. in that Akai doesn't want to hurt the worm. He, he, he doesn't, doesn't see the point. To, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of ultimately where we're going with their intertwined story at the moment when she tries to take his autonomy, mm-hmm. um, his, his humanity, he, like he becomes the author of his own humanity. Right. In this sense, the whole time through the whole book, it's growing because he doesn't want to commit violence. He doesn't want to hurt people. He wants to save people. He even wants to, he, he calls the monster brother. He wants to form a bond instead of fighting or destroying him. And they kind of, they kind of do. They have a moment. For a moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's a moment where there actually could be some kind right. of remedying of the the anger or right. something. I mean, it's, you know, and, you know, I don't know how much to read into this. I, I The more we talk, the more I'm, I'm finding myself reading into things I hadn't really picked up on before. But there is a moment of duality there where you've got the black boy and the white man. Mm-hmm. And so they're even as white men, really. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, but what I mean to say is with the monster. No, that's what I'm saying. He's multiple oh. <laughs> men. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So there's even a little bit of that there. Of like, is there is there this way of resolving these? Right, because I mean, f- the monster is the monster of the past. Right, mm-hmm. he is literally. I mean, in, in you know, you're mentioning 200 odd years ago. Like, right. Yeah. Well, what was going on at that time in America? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's parallels here with these, you know. These two people kind of at a, having a moment of recognition that is ultimately destroyed mm-hmm. uh, by interact. I can't remember exactly what happens, but somebody interrupts them. I think it might be Doctor Baker. It is Doctor Baker. Yeah. Yes, she mm-hmm. comes in or something. But anyways, yeah. I'm sorry. I think you were you had a, a, an idea. No. Oh, okay. I lost it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a very interesting. If I could. I wish we had more of issue six. I just wish we had more issues because yes. I, I feel like the end is not the end. The ending is so kind of, it wraps everything up a little too neatly. Well, it does. Yes, it does a lot of, it does a lot of really weird things to finish out this storyline in a happy way. Mm-hmm. And when I say that I, I wish there was more of issue six, as I mean to say, I think at that point, the, the narrative, as you mentioned earlier, really starts to figure itself out. 
you know, it starts to actually get to where I think it's trying to go, right? Right. With these big discussions about these heady issues. Mm -hmm. So much of the stuff before that just really felt kind of petty or unnecessary, you know, with these sort of weird moments of like the, the two goofball, you know, agents who are coming to capture Dr. Baker, Mm -hmm. who just really aren't relevant in in a lot of ways to what's going on. And I think issue five, issue six, it really starts to get at these thoughtful ideas about like, oh my God, like let's talk about transhumanism and autonomy. And like, that's where the race stuff really kicks in into like a really impactful way. And it's unfortunate that's where it ends. And I think the the reason that that's even worse is because the the ending to me is, as you mentioned, kind of troubling. And in my side, completely forgives <laughs> Doctor Baker, which I find really really problematic. Right. So the ending of the book, everyone dies. <laughs> uh, everyone, everyone but Akai. Everyone but Akai. So Akai kills the monster, but not before the monster kills his father and his mother. So mm-hmm. Pliers is dead, and Dr. Baker dies. However... What we find out <laughs> is that uh, Kai's mother has uploaded herself into her son's brain? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> Which, I guess, from... Some readers might have read that as, oh, that's nice, like he hasn't lost his mother at all. I was deeply disturbed by this idea of, especially when this moment is preceded by talking about Akai's supposed immortality. Yes. He could go on forever. We have no idea what the limits of his process are. Now we find that his mother is literally in his head. Yeah. There is no escaping her now there is no <laughs> privacy and it's not to say that it's not to say that he should want to escape from her entirely right but that he should be afforded distance when he wants it and we have no indication that he will ever be able to achieve that he is for all intents and purposes a 12 year old boy whose mother is in the back of his head his mother can will be able to see everything he does we don't know what access she has to his thoughts, what access she has to his body, but they are two people, mother and son, sharing one body. That weirds me out. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. Now, granted, I guess if we if we assume that he has more control than she does, considering his abilities to bypass a lot of the codes and stuff she had originally put in him, maybe he has ways to, to shut her into some kind of... Close, in, you know what I mean. Maybe right. he does have ways of keeping him to himself in some regard. I mean, he's a computer boy. We don't really understand how his mind right. works, but yes, the the way it's presented is a little bit creepy because mm-hmm. she just pops in his head and she's like, "Hey, I'm here." Also, creepier still that this seems to have been a capability of the suit that she was wearing for this final confrontation with the lab and the monster and the bride. Yeah. So this was an eventuality she was prepared for. Right. This is something that she had pre-thought out, which also to me suggests that, and I don't like projecting too much beyond the end of a story, Mm -hmm. but this suggests to me that why wouldn't she have ways or fail-safes for taking over if she wanted to or needed to Mm -hmm. for whatever reason? Ah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, my biggest problem with it was 
she is literally in the middle of a a monologue about the fact that the world needs to burn to the ground for the death of her son. Then she dies, and suddenly when she's in his head, she's like the loving mom, right. like the bubbly mom. And it was <laughs> this strange disconnect of like, this woman was like telling us that we needed to see all of it. Like everyone needed to die, basically. And right. now it's just like, oh, everything's great. Thanks, son. You really made me think about my my thoughts, or I don't know. Right. It's so As strange. by dying, she is unburdened by the... The, the sadness that she had. It, yeah. Or the or the rage, really. Right, yeah. I mean, it's the rage more than the sadness. That's true. Victor LaVale himself does call this a story about grief, but I think I, I think you're hitting on something like, this is a story more about rage yeah. than anything, which I think is uh, honestly a much more interesting way to think about it than out of grieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rage at an entire system... A, a systemically racist society yeah. uh, with sci-fi elements added in, which complicate everything in potentially very interesting and cool ways. But to have her make that sudden change, it does, it is incredibly unbelievable. Yeah. The idea, especially when you're considering the idea that it isn't so much that she's, it enters this spiritual question, right? Almost like her soul left her body and went to heaven. Like it was, oh, it was yeah. cleansed by crossing over that spiritual threshold. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened. Right. She has literally transferred her consciousness electronically into a host. Yeah. So it's confusing that whole, the meta narrative of transmute trans humanity and, the you know, approaching the singularity and what is AI and what is, what is all of this technology? What does it actually mean for mm-hmm. the human condition? The answer, Tim? Butts. God, it's God. Oh, I was going to say butts. <laughs> this is God's God's journey, man. <laughs> we're just, <laughs> you know, we're just fly specks on the back of God's butt <laughs> traveling through the galaxy waiting to see what uh, what happens. Uh, yes, yes. We will, we will never have an answer to this question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wish this book. I wish this book was an ongoing. I wish this book had twenty five issues or be, something. It would be interesting as an ongoing. I think I mean, it, not like a forever ongoing. But right. I, I wish this. Had I a, think twelve issues. Twelve would have, been, 12 would have probably worked. Yeah. This is this. The story is the premise is good enough that it deserves a twelve issue run. Yeah. All right. Well, we. Uh, I think we hit on everything. There's there's a lot of things we didn't get to complain about. Sure. But that's probably for the better. There's a lot of things we didn't get to praise either, which is Yeah. I know. think we did a lot more praise than I thought we were going to do. I right. I'm actually glad about where we got in our discussion because I was a little bit worried. Yeah, I didn't want it to be a just straight up panning the book. No, I didn't want to do that either. No. And, I, and we didn't, I think. Right. I hope. If um, we did, I'm sorry. Yeah. We did talk a lot about race in ways that I don't think we're necessarily equipped for. Yeah, we did okay, I think. I think we did all right, but, you know, there's always there's always, w- there's always room for learning. Sure. I mean, I always well. will admit that I am a white man who has <laughs> never experienced any of the things I could right. possibly... E- I can't even imagine the things, literally. It's, it's nothing more so, dangerous than a well-meaning white person. Yeah, so I... I I, we should every episode when we do like we should have like a big warning. <laughs> you are about to listen right. to two grown white men 
try to talk about race. So, you know, I... Rather than spoilers, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we try our best, but of course, there, there's probably things in this book that we just, we're not even picking up on. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and that's, that's our blind spots that we have to try to cover. So, uh, hopefully we didn't offend by any of the things we said. I think we were good, though. Yeah. Not to pat ourselves on the back too much. Right. Um, I'm always wary of back patting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we did fine. Yeah. We did fine. Fine. All right. Well, Bare minimum. I think that's everything for this episode. Karen might cut all this out because she doesn't want to hear two <laughs> white guys <laughs> compliment themselves <laughs> as a conclusion. So if you do, that's probably for the better. Anyways, thank you, everybody, for listening again to Comics Obscura. This episode was Destroyer. And we were destroyed. And we were destroyed. <laughs> See you next time. The song you are listening to is In 2 by Uinta from the album Sweetest. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify now. This episode was produced by Carrie Ann Cahall. To subscribe to our podcast, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. For more content, visit our website, comicsobscurapodcast.com. You can find Comics Obscura on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Comics Obscura and Instagram at Comics Obscura Podcast. Tell us what you think about the episode or the comic we just read.